I have said things to God that I would not want to say about God. Um, (laughs) I have learned that God is able for us to be honest with Him about the difficulties that we face. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with Steve McKinnon, who teaches at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He has his B.A. from Mississippi College, his master's at the University of Mobile, and a Ph.D. at the University of Aberdeen, Scotland. Does everyone ask you, why Scotland? I get that a lot. Why Scotland? (laughs) I think it was a great place to go and live. So we looked forward to spending some time overseas, and Scotland was a wonderful choice. For someone who teaches religion and deals with religion in a scholarly level, also in your writings, you've published several books, but also has a pastoral background. How early on did you know that was going to be your thing? Well, academics has always been important to me and to my family. And when I started studying theology academically, I knew that there was still a contribution to be made to the church. I don't necessarily see a distinction between a devotional study of the Bible and the things of God and language about God and an academic study of the things of God. Theology for me is about language. Mm. It's language primarily that is useful to the church to help Christians understand what the faith is, to be able to articulate the faith within their families and to their friends, but to also make sense of the world that they live in and give them an opportunity to live Christianly in a world that isn't always conducive to living Christianly. For me, I'm hoping for a tale of two beginnings here. One is I do later want to get into the beginnings of the early church, which you have studied and written about extensively. The other is your own early beginning of belief. And did you grow up in a home that church was part of? I did. I grew up in a Christian family. Family was always in church. I don't ever remember a time when church wasn't important to us. My extended family uh, are all Christians as well. I grew up in a a town in Mississippi where virtually all of my neighbors were Christians as well. And even those who weren't would identify themselves that way. So there was a cultural Christianity that I was familiar with from the very earliest period of my life. Mm. Never remember a time when we weren't going to church. Every Sunday, it was a part of the rhythm of my life, participating in church activities. But also in the town that I grew up in, a lot of community activities revolved around church as well. Uh, There wasn't much of a distinction between community and church. Uh, Because everyone was a part of church would, for the most part, identify themselves as Christians. It was just a natural part of, of my life growing up. And did you come to a place where you actually had to take a little step aside and say, is this my culture or is this actually something I I believe in my heart? So I never doubted the truthfulness of the claims of Christianity. Participating in the Christian life and participating in church, you hear the gospel, you hear the Bible stories, you hear the messages about God. And I never would have doubted that Jesus wasn't real, that he didn't live, that he didn't die on the cross, and that he wasn't raised from the dead, and that he didn't desire that I would know him and live forever in the place that he uh, was preparing for me. I never doubted that. 
But I did have a crisis of faith in high school with whether I wanted to participate in that faith or not. Mm. Not the the historical claims or the veracity of the claims, but the the faith claims that God has on on my life, on on our lives. And so I, I wrestled with whether or not I was going to be faithful to that faith, to that message that I believe to be true. But I wasn't always certain that I wanted to participate in that faith. And so when I was in high school, I came to a a real crisis in faith and knew that I had to make a choice. It was a crossroads that I came to, to either place my faith in Christ and to follow him or to reject the claims that Christ was making on my life and go my own way, whether the, the claims of the Bible were true or not. If these things are true and I'm going to trust my life to the God who is making these claims, then I have to trust all of my life. The Bible talks about taking up our cross and dying to ourself mm-hmm. and that we don't pick and choose what parts of the Christian faith we're going to participate in and which ones we aren't. And so with genuine trust comes obedience. The language that we would use in our tradition was to place my faith in Christ, mm. to receive Jesus. Jesus talks about that if you drink of the living water, which he is, then you have a rebirth, you're born again. And that that rebirth comes whenever we entrust our lives fully and completely to Jesus Christ. And by doing so, we then come to participate in his life and the life that he's offered to us. Our sins are forgiven. We're reconciled to God in him. And so that was the choice that I had to make was whether I was going to place my faith in Christ or my faith in faith. For me, being a genuine Christian, an authentic Christian means faith in Christ, not just faith in faith. But my attitude also changed toward other people. The gospel of Jesus Christ leads us not just to love God with all that we have and all that we are, but to love our neighbors ourselves. And I realized that the law of Christ is to love one another in the way that God loves us, to forgive one another, to care for one another, to look out for one another's interests more than my own interest. And it, was a, it has been a gradual process of me unlearning previous habits in order <laughs> to learn new habits. Um, but in the end, it comes down to a changing of affections. And so when you— Do you have an example of how, how you might have perceived or dealt with or loved someone differently because I, of that change happening? So before trusting in Jesus, a person who would have a need, for example, I might have compassion for them. I might have pity on them because they had a a real need, whether it's physical or emotional. A friend at school, for example, in high school or or a classmate at school might have an emotional need. And rather than seeing them as someone just to feel sorry for, to have pity on, I now see them as someone that God loves and that God cares for. And so I should love them and care for them as well. And so being one who would give my life over to someone else for their benefit, to help their interests be met as opposed to just my own interest, Mm. as well as someone who maybe didn't express a need but instead expressed an offense, learning to forgive them. It's an attitude that has to change. As a Christian, I had to learn to forgive people who would offend me or who would wrong me, and that was something that didn't come natural, to forgive an offense of someone. That natural man, that thing that we have to sacrifice. My experience with having to take a step of faith is that in looking back, I often 
receive what I feel like is confirmation. But at the time, it did not seem at all 100% certain. I just thought, I'm going to do this. I'm just going to have faith. I'll make this decision. We'll, we'll do this. This is the best we know how. We're asking God for guidance. And it's been interesting to look back and see some of those times, confirmation of that faith. So this change in your life, have you had moments that felt like confirmation of that choice to you? Certainly, and they nearly always revolve around relationships with other people. Hmm. I think this is a very important and oftentimes, for myself, underappreciated aspect of the Christian faith, and that is the way it establishes relationships with other people. I think sometimes what has happened, even in my own life, is that the Christian life is seen primarily in moral terms where there were behaviors that I had done before I became a Christian that perhaps I stopped doing. So certain external activities that would be immoral activities or unethical activities that might just be personal behaviors that aren't consistent with the message of the gospel or what the Bible presents to us as God's design for people and how we should live with regard to him. And while that's a very important part of the Christian life, it's not exclusively what Christianity is about. It's about reestablishing a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and a relationship with other people and the right kind of relationship, this relationship of care and concern and harmony and peace that genuinely is interested in what is best for the other person. And I think that's a part of maturing that I've had to endure as a, as a Christian. <laughs> I like that um, choice of word. And But what's happened is along the way, the way in which those relationships that are Christian relationships grow and emerge and get deeper become a confirmation to this is the right path to be taking. You know, the Christian faith doesn't always lead to, and in fact, rarely leads to an ease of living. You know, there's still sickness, there's still pain, there's still hurt. I have a son who has spent seven years dealing with childhood cancer, and those things still we must endure as a Christian. So the Christian life isn't about fixing our difficulties or solving all of our problems, but it is fundamentally about creating relationships with other people around this wonderful message of God's love for us and God's love for them. You can tell me if you're comfortable with this or not, but in that time, if you have a family member in dire need, as this must have been with your son that you mentioned, there are people who think we've been abandoned. There are others who who will say we were carried along. Did that change your family relationship to God, that experience? Steve, I'm not sure if it changed our relationship necessarily, but it certainly challenged our mm. relationship with God. I remark often that I have said things to God during this time that I have, would not want to say about God um, <laughs> during this time. I, I think I have, um, I have learned that God is able for us to be honest with him about the difficulties that we face. And there have been times when, like the disciples of Jesus, when they're walking along and they see a blind man on the road and they ask, who sinned, this man or another? 
I have many times asked that question with them. Is this something that, that I did? Is this is the cause of my son, who was only 10 years old at the time, getting cancer? Is this punishment? Is this judgment from God? Is this God abandoning him or abandoning our family? I've many times asked that question. And I think as a professional theologian, if I can put it that way, as a professional theologian, Many of the answers that I have given and would give to others faced a a real challenge, a a real threat. Do I believe the things that I have said and the ways that I have described God's love and God's work? And more than once, I've had to sit and ask myself, do I really believe these things to be true? Right. And I I think what has happened is I've realized and my family has realized that the sickness and death and the grieving and the disease and so many other difficulties that we face in this world are not a reflection on God's actions towards us, that they instead are a reflection of the world that we live in, which the Bible presents to us as kind of the wilderness, this place of exile in Babylon or in the wilderness, as opposed to being in the promised land, as the the Bible puts it, or in, in the Garden of Eden, as it were. And the results of living where we live are that there are there is sickness and there is crying and there is death. It's the environment we're in. It's the environment that we live in. And what God does, though, is to be present with us in two ways, by means of his spirit and by means of his people. So I don't want to disassociate the suffering that my son has gone through or that our family has gone through from our theology, but also don't want to blame that suffering on our theology or on the faith. It instead, the suffering that is, has to be seen in the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that God joins us in our suffering when he becomes incarnate as Jesus, and the cross becomes this this place of unveiling for us, where we see the very heart of God participating in our suffering. And it's a demonstration, as the Bible says, of his love for us, that even when we weren't his friends and we weren't his children, he died for us on the cross so that we might be friends of God, so we might be adopted as as sons and daughters. That gives us a great sense of hope. When are the times that you feel that God is with you, that you feel that presence? Are there particular things that help that happen? There are, and I think primarily it's being with the people of God. It is as God's people live together as the people of God, as the church, that the Spirit is, is most manifest. And so we, we see and experience and know his presence as we gather with, with other believers, not just in a Sunday morning setting where we're, we're having church uh, events together, but living life together as Christians, and in particular, living the Christian life together. To be aware of others and their needs. And to, and to step in to meet those mm-hmm. needs, because we tend to equate need with physical need. So someone doesn't have money, or they don't have clothes, or they don't have enough food, and we see that as a need. But emotional needs and spiritual needs, and even mental needs, are they too require the body of Christ to step in and to care for one another, or to minister to one another would be the language that I would use, to minister the Spirit to each other in how we, how we care for one another at these times of need. The Bible talks about when people are too weak to pray, that others who are, who are stronger pray for them. 
there certainly are times of weakness when you go through suffering like this. And to have others come in and pray for you and to pray with you and to, in the midst of suffering, know that the Spirit of God intercedes for us, as Romans 8 says, are times when you know the presence of God, when that concern and care is being manifest. Just looking on Amazon, I found three books that you've published. Are there others? There aren't other books. I've contributed to other books, Uh, but those are the three books that I've I've published to this point. One of these seems to me to really tie in to exactly what we've been discussing. When I picture what I know from the New Testament of the early saints of the church living together, having things in common, caring for one another, all of that. One of your books, and this uh, I mentioned to you as we were setting up, is on my list of got to get this one is Life and Practice in the Early Church, a Documentary Reader. What did you learn that surprised you as you started really focusing on how people lived in those early years, just after Christ? I think what surprised me the most was how the early Christians were so intent on living out their faith in community with other people. Hmm. What I discovered in putting this together was uh, there was a theme that ran through the life of the early church, and that really was community. They saw the life that they were living together as one of communion with each other, and that was the things they did at church. So we even call Uh, When we share in the Lord's Supper together, we call that communion because that's an act of we're sharing the gospel with each other, but it's it's deeper than just a message that they were sharing with one another. And so as I walked through the various aspects of the church's life, I saw they were integrated with one another. And so when it came to participating in communion or the Lord's Supper or the Lord's Table, for those who were sick and couldn't come, they would take the elements to their house for example. And they saw that as a way to ensure that everybody was a part of this community. It wasn't just a practice that, well, they're going to be missing out on the elements, on the bread and the crushed fruit of the vine if we don't take that to them. It was, they're going to be missing out on the community. And baptism was much the same way. In the earliest church, the night before baptism ceremonies, the whole church would fast in preparation for the event. Yeah, so it wasn't just the person who was being baptized. The whole church would say, we're going to fast because tomorrow we're having a baptism ceremony, and we want to join in this celebration with a person who's being baptized. There would be interactions when the, the church would gather together that would involve responding to not just the texts that are being read, but the people who are present there. And it carried into every area of their life so that When they were giving their alms to take care of of people who didn't have money, it wasn't just charity in the sense of pity and we want to help somebody because they don't have money. It was driven by the sense of all of this belongs to God and we become stewards of every area of our life. And that's something that really jumped out, that they they were intentional about living in community because they were stewarding their relationships with one another. Interesting. So what are we missing today that you see in those early Christians that you think, wow, we need more of that? Is there something? I think the biggest thing that we're missing is an emphasis on a gospel which is more robust than just our getting to heaven. So in the early church, Christianity and the salvation that Christianity offers, the faith— is personal, but it's not individual. And what I mean by that is 
The gospel by its very nature establishes a new family, a new faith community, a faith family, and living that faith out is the essence of our living in right relationship with each other. And I think what happens with a lot of, at least in my own religious tradition, what happens is the concern is how can I go to heaven? How can I live forever in right relationship with God? How can I live forever in the presence of God? And Christianity offers that, but it's not the full extent of what the gospel is or what the Christian faith is. And I think we've missed the part that says that the gospel is more robust than just my individual, you know, something good happening to me as an individual. Mm. But it is, I'm now placed within a community, and I'm, as a part of this body, I have a role to play. The Bible even talks about that there are eyes in the body and ears yeah. and feet and that sort of thing. The members of the body of Christ. That's right. And, and that as members of the body, we play our role. And not everybody plays the same role, but that we do it for, as that passage in 1 Corinthians 12 says, for the common good. That is for the good of the community. And I don't know that, at least in my experience as a Christian, I don't know that the gospel is is seen as being that robust. I think sometimes living in the Christian community is almost an afterthought or even a consequence of the of the gospel, but not the gospel itself. And I think in the early church there was no distinguishing loving God and loving neighbor. They were tied together in in the gospel. So you weren't living Christianly if you only loved neighbor but didn't love God. And you weren't living Christianly if you only loved God but didn't love neighbor, Mm -hmm. that those two go hand in hand with one another. And that's where I I think we could recapture that, at least in in my own religious tradition. The two great commandments. That's exactly right. And And that the entire sum of the law is those two commands. I can't wait to read this book. Yeah. This, is, this is fascinating to me. Let me ask you a, a personal question, which is, are there particular ways that you feel God tends to answer your prayers? My experience, and I can only judge from that, is that for different people, it comes in different ways. You know, I think God, for in my own life, in my own experience, God's answer to my prayers is more an affirmation that he can be trusted. Hmm. No matter what happens. No matter what happens. You know, I thought, I think when I was younger, and certainly as a younger Christian, I think I thought that praying was trying to get God to do certain things. You know, if I can just be persuasive enough. That's right. If I even reading this parable that Jesus tells about the woman who's persistent, who continues to knock on the door and that, you know, the neighbor finally gives her the things that she needs and gets out of bed and gives her what what she's asking for. I think sometimes I understood that to be that the goal of praying is to align God with my will. I don't know I ever would have said it that way, Steve, but I think I lived it that way, that Mm -hmm. I had what I wanted to occur. And I was going to ask God enough and beg him and maybe even make deals with him to get what I wanted him to do. And as I've grown as a Christian, I've realized more and more that praying is about God's will being done and me having my own affections and my own will conform to his will. So like in the model prayer, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what that does then is it puts me in the place of being subservient to God's will as opposed to trying to put God in the place of being 
subservient to mine. And then I discover that God usually answers his prayer through people. Rarely in my experience have I seen that God just moves a mountain. Uh, Typically, it's people in big trucks with giant equipment that move (laughs) mountains. But that can be an answer to prayer. So in, in praying for my son's healing, which I think is completely appropriate for us to pray that God would bring healing to someone who is sick, for example, and primarily theolog- there are theological reasons for that because the, the Bible tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth, there won't be any sickness. So I think it's appropriate that we pray toward that ultimate end, that eschatological kingdom which is mm-hmm. coming in the future. But Oftentimes, that healing comes when there's an advancement in research or a doctor prescribes the right medicine or the right treatment for something. And I still see that as answering prayer because it is me conforming myself to the will of God and then God using people to bring about what his plan, what his will is. And that's how I see my prayers answered most often. I think I heard you say the word trust. Trust. I resonate when you you equate faith and trust, mm. that I will trust no matter the outcome, that God knows all things. I think we have to see trust in terms of a relationship. I don't trust God like I trust the bridge that I drive over, that I'm not going to fall through the, the bridge. You know, I just kind of have to put my faith into that. Uh-huh. I trust God because he's my father and he's trustworthy. I equate it to a couple that's married to one another. When you enter into a marriage relationship, you are saying to that other person, I might have some evidence that would tell me that you would be a trustworthy person, but in the end, I'm entrusting my future to you. And if you mistreat this, you mistreat me, if you betray my love, if you betray my trust, I'm going to suffer consequences from that. But but it's worth the trust. The relationship is worth the risk for me to entrust myself to you. And I think that's exactly what we do with God, that we go to God and we say, there is evidence, whatever level of evidence we might have or not have, but evidence that you can be trusted. The scriptures tell us of your trustworthiness. And so I'm going to entrust my whole life to you, my past, my present, and my future. If you don't handle this, I'm in big trouble. And that's a part of our trusting him. But it's relational, Steve. It's not just metaphysical, that it it really comes down to making ourselves vulnerable to God and saying, I'm going to believe that what you say is true, and so I'm going to act on that. And when you tell me this is the best way to live my life, then I'm going to live my life that way. And if I get to the end and I find out the meek don't inherit the earth, then I'm just going to do without because I'm going to entrust that when you say that the meek inherit the earth, that meekness is the way that I should live. Fascinating. Thank you so much. I'm speaking with Dr. Steve McKinnon, who teaches at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you for the opportunity to be here, for all that you do, for what this program does, and God bless you, Steve. Thanks for tuning in to In Good Faith. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a panel of listeners talk about the ideas presented by our guest from the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Steve McKinnon. Back in a moment with more of In Good Faith.
This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person accounts and stories of faith and belief. What do you think of the idea that religion is not just to prepare us for an afterlife, but to actually help us live in community here? If you really come to believe that something is true, do you feel an obligation to live it? Whether it's a principle or a belief in God? We invited a group of people to listen to our guest and then respond. Denise Anderson is a mother of six, grandmother of three. She hides candy in her closet that she eats while reading historical fiction. She's a city councilwoman and keeps her husband's business organized and running. Jim Slaughter is the father of four, grandfather of ten. His grandkids think he is Santa Claus. Davison Cheney writes blogs and how-tos for people who know less than he does. Marin Del Rio is a songwriter and studio engineer from Provo, Utah. I think, you know, some of the things I heard, I think about an experience I went to when I was very first married. Six weeks after I was married, I was 21 years old, and my dad died, had an aneurysm. Up until that time, I kind of lived under the misinformation that things like that didn't happen to good people and good families because we had always, you know, thought that we'd done everything right. And and it was something that I didn't expect that would ever happen in my life. And up until that time, that was, you know, one of the worst things that had ever happened to me. And I remember, I remember my older brother and I drove from Idaho to Washington to be with my dad at the hospital. And I remember we were praying over him asking God to, to heal him and, and to make him better. That's not what happened. You know, my dad did pass away, and it was a little hard. Well, it was really hard at first because everything I'd thought up to that time was kind of challenged. And I think what uh, Dr. McKinnon was talking about is, you know, kind of aligning yourself with God's will and that things are going to happen, but God's always going to be there with you. I think through prayer and, uh, and faith, I was able to, to kind of deal with the situation and accept the situation and continue on and continue to have a productive life. I think without, without a strong faith, I think, I think there's a very good chance that an experience like that could have really destroyed me and made me a very jaded and unhappy person. But my faith has helped me you know, focus on the positive memories of my father and, you know, of course, my personal faith that, you know, I will see my father again. So, yeah, I I appreciate that perspective. Well, you can see how some people are going to take these experiences and think of them as punishments. My mom died when I was 12, and therefore I've done something wrong. Yeah. I think one of the things that Steve mentioned is that he said, God is able for us to be honest with him. And that's one of the the things that we do when we develop our relationship with God is we can go to him and say, hey, this is how I really feel about this. I thought that when I did good things, kept the commandments, did all these things, my life would be easy. But we can be honest with God and say, I'm feeling hurt. I'm feeling, I mean, I've gone to God before and say, I feel I've been ripped off. You know, maybe if your parent dies or you have health problems or God loves us enough that we can be honest with him and tell him how we feel about things, and he still loves us even so. And so when these challenges come in our lives, we can go to him openly and say, I feel this way, and he still loves us and still cares about us because he knows us, and he knows that we love him, but we're just going through something that he needs us to go through to become a better person. I can imagine him listening to prayers, thinking, okay, 
just hold on. <laughs> yeah. That gratification or that blessing that you thought should be there immediately is going to be a little bit longer in coming, but something's coming. Yeah. Not our time. God's time. Sometimes it's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> Too long. Yeah. I think one of the greatest blessings that, that we get is just that, that feeling that things are going to be okay eventually and that comfort that we can get. And, you know, I think Dr. McKinnon mentioned that most of our blessings come through other people. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm grateful for all the people that were around at that time to help me through that situation and, you know, subsequent things, because that's not the only thing that's happened in my life that hasn't been one that I would have chosen. I couldn't even count all the people that, that I believe God's placed in my life to help me deal with things and manage things. I thought it was beautiful the way Dr. McKinnon described his relationship with God more like the relationship you have in a marriage than the relationship that you have to trust when you go over the bridge. I'd never really thought of it that way before, but I think it ties into what we're saying about being able to be honest with him, being able to be vulnerable with God. Being able to trust him isn't just trusting that he'll be there when we need him, but trusting that even when we go through hard things, that he knows what he's doing and he's doing it to help us become better. That he knows more than we do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hard. And therefore I can trust. He sees the big picture that I don't see, so he can uh, guide me in places, tell me to be patient because blessings or rewards might be happening. Isn't that interesting also that he didn't harp on a blessings and rewards? That's not what we're here to do as far as Christianity is concerned, as he was mentioning it. Mm-hmm. Not what's in this for me, but how can I put what I want to be in line with what God wants get my canoe out on that river, and then, of course, I'm going to be successful if I'm in line with what God wants. Right, and sometimes we fight so hard against that and want God to align his will with ours, and we spend years and years trying to make that happen. And then when we give in and finally align our will with God's, our life becomes so much more peaceful and happy. And productive. Yeah, exactly. We waste a lot of time trying to fight against that. Something I thought was interesting that um, Dr. McKinnon said so many times was this phrase to place my faith in Christ or place my life in the hands of God. And I was thinking about how deliberate that phrase is to place your faith in God or place your life. It's an act. It's something we have to do. It's not something that, uh, that happens subconsciously. We have to consciously make an effort to place our faith in God and be deliberate about that. And then we see those blessings start to flow. So many times this act of being deliberate, you're at some point forced to be deliberate and place your faith in God. Um, For so many years, my husband and I wanted to have children and we couldn't. And I felt somehow I was being punished or I kept saying, look, I've done everything I was supposed to do. Why can't this blessing that I think we should naturally have, why isn't this coming? And I doubted that God had a plan for me in that area. I doubted that he wanted me to be a mother. And at some point, my husband and I both had to get to the point where we deliberately placed our faith in God and said, we're going to turn this over to you. And we're going to trust that you have a plan for us and that it's a good plan and we're going to have to go along with your plan and not our plan. So uh, when that finally happened is when things actually started to fall into place. And going from the situation of not having any children to now we have six children all adopted. Heavenly Father had a plan for those children to come to us, but we had to place our trust in him and be deliberate about it. 
Yeah, you focused on that quite a bit in the beginning, the action, the before and the after, the place, not just have, which is a little bit more passive, but place my faith in, and then I do. And he had a list of things that, that he did, go to church, join the community. Uh, speaking about the early church, things that they did, you know, the hymns, the reading of the scriptures or the Torah, mm-hmm. uh, things that they actually did to show that faith, to demonstrate that faith, to bring others into that faith. Right. It was interesting. He kept saying the church. And of course, I'm thinking about my individual denomination, the church. What does he mean? And then I realized it doesn't really matter because he was speaking about general Christianity, the church at the time of Christ, the church that Christ had had organized, and the things that they were doing to demonstrate their faith. Same kind of things that I'm hoping my church does today taking of the sacrament. He mentioned the bread and the fruit of the vine. You know, uh, in my particular denomination, we have that sacrament as well. I was really impressed with the things that I had in common that that we do in in the church today versus the things that they did at the time of Christ or shortly after. Mm -hmm. I was thinking about you know, this kind of leads into this, but maybe it's it's a shift. But I really liked what he said about relationships and, and the community. I think that transcends everything, and I think every faith and every walk of life. And I thought about the genuineness of relationships and what a great blessing it is to have genuine relationships with people who genuinely care about you, genuinely love you, and aren't trying to get something from you. And I think true faith and, and true adherence and devotion create that because that's a, that's something that I think that society's always struggled with and struggles with now. I think it creates a lot of loneliness and a lot of mistrust and things like that. And he talked a lot about trusting trusting God and and I think being able to have those trusting relationships with each other is I think one of the blessings God wants for all of us is to have those relationships. I was going to go into talk a little bit about forgiveness because I don't know if he mentioned forgiveness, but I think forgiveness is really kind of crucial to any discussion about faith, our extending forgiveness and ourselves being forgiven. And I think we've probably all been blessed to have been forgiven at some point by people. I hope we all have. (laughs) And I hope we've had the opportunity to forgive others and sometimes there's been some terrible ha- things that happen in people's lives. And as we, as we see people and interact with people, we don't know the trauma that they've dealt with and the difficult things that they've dealt with. And so, you know, a lot of times we don't know why people may behave the way they do. And there may be things that we, that we don't see, but, you know, the gospel and the ideal of forgiveness, you know, is crucial that's funny. That reminds me of my daughter on a trampoline. She was. We had a, a family party. She was on the trampoline, and she'd bounce, and then she'd kind of stop and bring her hands up in kind of a, a funny "don't hit me, don't hit me" sort of way. And the family's looking at her, going, "What is she doing?" And I was sad to know exactly what she was doing. There was a time when I was supposed to catch her. She was supposed to jump off the trampoline into my arms, and I messed it up and didn't catch her properly. (laughs) So that's my daughter's out there on the trampoline, shaking and looking a little odd because she's she's remembering that I didn't catch her, and there was that trust that that I had had broken at that point, and I had to build that up. Fortunately, our trust with God is completely different. He, He knows everything. I can relax a little bit and not be as afraid that I'm not going to be caught and trust in God. 
much easier to do than, than in a dad who wasn't paying attention. This is a conversation in good faith. Listeners sharing their thoughts on the first half of today's show with Dr. Steve McGinnion from the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Find the full episode online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith. Now back to the conversation. Dr. McKinnon said, learn to forgive people because of our love of God. And I loved that phrase. And I jotted some thoughts down while I heard that because um, years ago, we had an experience in our family where we had uh, one of our children was abused by somebody. And very, very difficult for me as a mother. My whole life is surrounding around trying to protect my children and keep anything bad from happening to them. And then this happens, and it just rocked my world. I knew that I needed to forgive this person, even though they never said they were sorry. They're never going to apologize. They're never going to take responsibility. That's not important to me. What's important to me is that I needed to find out how to forgive them. And it literally took almost two decades for me to figure that out. But it is because of my love of God that I was finally able to come to that point and say, it doesn't matter if they never say they're sorry. God needs me to forgive them because he will forgive me when I come to him. And if I need him to forgive me, I better forgive those around me. So it was a really hard, long lesson to learn, but I'm grateful that at the end of it, that's the conclusion that I came to. And I felt that peace when I finally said, okay, I can let that go. I can finally let that go. He spoke about uh, communal living, communal living. That resonated with me a little bit. Um, and for some of those reasons, Denise, that you mentioned, there have been times when the trust between me and, and other people around me in my community hasn't been grand. And that's tough to want to step back out to make yourself vulnerable or assist somebody else as they're trying to be, be vulnerable, all living as a, and creating the relationships that he, that was a running theme, mm-hmm. uh, creating the relationships with other people and with God. In fact, he said reestablishing a relationship with God. And I immediately grabbed onto that and thought reestablishing a relationship that was already there, that just got me thinking to, uh, to my relationship and what I believe may have happened before I came down to earth and what's going to happen a little bit later on. I thought the idea of community, he seemed to emphasize it a lot. I really appreciated hearing about that because many members of my family have struggled with mental... Oh, I think we all know now. <laughs> yeah. No, <laughs> it's lots of that going on. The, yeah, yeah. Well, my mom and dad have struggled with feeling like they needed to impress people all the time. And I think while Dr. McKinnon was talking, he talked about going to church because you love church, because you love the religion, because you love the people and you're there to support all the other people. That really stood out to me because for a long time when I was growing up, I saw Like, my family went to church because that's what everyone did. That's what my grandparents did, and my parents were kind of terrified. Like, if they didn't go to church, they were scared of the repercussions of other people judging them and seeing. Um, And, yeah, feeling uninvolved with the community. And it took me a long time to realize that um, the church is about community lifting people up, building each other up, and about... Being there because you love them, because you love God. 
Which is much different from having to go to church because of what the neighbors will think if you don't. Yeah, right. It's an interesting comment. I think one of the other areas that was mentioned was kind of the maturation process within one's faith. I think that's a process that at least I expect to struggle with until they bury me. And I think Scripture and and life in general teach us that we're going to continue to fail, but the only ultimate failure is when we quit trying. And I think God has always said that He's there for us as often as we need Him. That gives me a lot of hope that that I can make it, uh, that I can continue to improve, and that I can continue to become a better person, not just for myself, but I think the older I get, the more interested I get in you know, helping other people and being able to be a resource and to be able to help people. And, and I think one of the things he, you know, he also mentioned was that not all needs are physical needs. He talked about there's all kinds of ways that we can help people. For us being in a, in a good place where we're able to provide that support is important, that we can provide emotional support and sometimes other types of support. I think that spiritual maturing takes place over generations, too. Like Marin was talking about her parents and grandparents and how this awareness evolves over a time about your faith and your spirituality. And you can look back and learn from your parents and grandparents. Take what they did great and go with it and take what you don't love so much and leave that behind. And we can do that with our families. We can do that with ourselves, too, as the years go on that we can leave things behind that we're not proud of and keep the things that that we love about ourselves and keep improving ourselves and become people that Heavenly Father answers prayers through, like you mentioned, uh, Jim, about that being able to serve as you get older and and wanting to do things for others. And as your relationship with God deepens you, you're more aware of things that you can do to be that answer. That's interesting. You said older. You said, as I get older. Um, (laughs) Steve mentioned uh, endure maturity, which is all about age. Enduring, of course, takes time. Maturity, of course, takes time. I think a lot of us want it to be instantaneous. I want to know immediately. I want to have my problem solved immediately. I want to have these skills. I've read in the scriptures, I need these skills. I want them immediately. And it's, unfortunately, I think it's an age thing. Yeah, I'm still pretty young, but I can see the changes from when I was really a little kid to how far I've come just in my faith and my personal beliefs. Like, I'm not a parent. I'm still in college, so I'm still kind of figuring things out. But it's interesting to see how the process works as you get older. The process. That's that's the word, isn't it? It's a process. Yeah. I thought about one other thing uh, that kind of goes along with this, and it was something that he mentioned, that there shouldn't be any distinction between loving God and loving our neighbors, that that should really kind of be seamless and kind of the same intent and the same – but the same process. And so – I really like that because I, I don't know how else to show God that I love him without caring for my neighbor. Mm-hmm. And I think I've learned that from a lot of examples when I was younger from other people who took time to do things for me. I remember our third child was born and you know he's in ICU. We had no idea how we were going to pay the bill. I was in graduate school and you know, we went to the thing to check our son out and take him home and we were you know, scared to get the bill. And they said, somebody came and paid your bill. And mm-hmm. being able to to receive those kind of blessings when you need them, but then 
like we talked about a little earlier, being in a position to perhaps provide those type of blessings to others is, I think, kind of how you demonstrate that. Because certainly a lot of people are good at accumulating wealth or accumulating things and things like that. But you also ought to be good at, at distributing your blessings to other people. Because if you believe that everything you have comes from God and you see others in need, there's an opportunity and it isn't always monetary. You know, as I think we talked about a little bit earlier, sometimes your time is pretty precious. And when you give that to other people, one of the things my wife's done since she retired is she spends a lot of time baking bread and making soup and taking it to the senior citizens in our neighborhood. And she'll sit and listen to them. Boy, they probably enjoy that more than they enjoy the bread, yeah, just the being listened to. It, it's probably yeah. a toss-up because it's really good bread. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> You know, that's something that, that I would really have to work at doing, but something that she, you know, she thoroughly enjoys is that service to other people that way. And sometimes it's time. And I thought of one connection when Steve was talking about, he said that Christian life is often seen primarily as like a moral commitment, how I live life in order to get to God. But then he said the big idea is how to care about other people. I kind of related that to, I'm a songwriter, so I write songs, I'm a producer, I produce songs, and I can do that for myself, but the magic of music doesn't come in until you invite someone else, like, hey, come sing this song with me, come play guitar on this track with me, come work with me. The finished product is always better when we work together. Which leads works. right back to creating relationships. I can't imagine yeah. you sitting in your little closet with your guitar singing to yourself. <laughs> the moment you get an audience, though, you've got something to give. That's a perfect example. That's great. I wrote this down as he was speaking. I don't know if this is him or, or what I thought of, but I believe, therefore I act. Mm -hmm. I don't just believe and, and sit there and, and do nothing and look at my picture of the second coming on the wall. I go out and do something. I, I help somebody. I show. I I show the love that I'm feeling in my heart by doing something. Right. I, he, it kept going back to that for me. Yeah. He used the the word stewards. We that's become right. stewards of each other, and I think that's what it's all about. Which this is community doing. and loving each other. Yeah. Doing for each other. Feeling that responsibility to take care of one another because of our love for God, because of our love of our neighbor. To offer ourselves, to love our neighbors, to care for others, all things that he said. That's our time for today. Thanks to our panelists, Denise, Jim, Davison, and Marin, and especially to our guests from the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, Dr. Steve McKinnon, for generously sharing his stories and his faith. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us online at byuradio.org slash ingoodfaith, email us at ingoodfaith at byu.edu, and subscribe to the podcast via iTunes. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join us again soon right here in good faith.